Good evening and welcome. Uh, tonight we're going to uh, try to get to the last of the questions that we've had submitted as we've gone through the marriage series. I want to mention that this next Sunday we're talking about uh, family matters, and uh, the title of this week's message, Sunday's message, is going to be "Help, I'm a Parent." So uh, <laughs> some of you can relate to this, but um, uh, it's one of those kind of things. My wife always said, "I can hardly wait till the kids get 18 and are on their own." They're 45 and they're still not on their own. You know what I mean? So we're going to, hopefully we'll have a real good time with that. But tonight we're going to go through uh, some of the questions. Uh, most of you know Drew, one of my assistant pastor here. And um, we're going to have a word of prayer and he's going to ask questions and we're going to talk about these things. Father God, we ask that you bless our conversation this evening. Uh, we pray that your Holy Spirit would just reveal your presence here because you made a promise to us. You said when two or more will gather in your name, you're right here in our midst. And we believe that, we receive that. And uh, Lord, there are things that every one of us in this room uh, struggles with, uh, questions that we could concern about. We pray that you would just give us clarity and um, just help us to really uh, bring the truth of your word to bear on the issues and the challenges we all face. In Jesus' name, amen. So, Drew. Amen. What do we have to talk about here? Well, I think we got three or four questions tonight. Good ones, so they're profound. Question number one. What about those of us who are widowed? How are we to deal with this message? Being single is extremely difficult and lonely. Uh, we're made for human connection. How do, how do we apply this message? Um, <clears throat> yeah. I think we can broaden that out to not only being a widow, but also being a widower, uh, a man who is in that same situation. I think that the place where you really need to start is, at least I think I would start with, with what Paul says uh, in 1 Corinthians 7, where he basically tells us that it is, uh, he, he doesn't want to forbid people from remarriage, but he says, first and foremost, that there are tremendous advantages to being single, and particularly that you can attend to the things of the Lord without distraction. But Paul, when he wrote in, in 1 Timothy 5 about uh, widows, uh, gave some really, really very specific instructions, and he said that essentially that uh, widows were to be um, really cared for within the context of the nuclear family. In other words, whether they have children uh, and, and other family members, and that bridge is designed by God to be a, a bridge for some of those relational voids. Uh, being a widow in the biblical times is a pretty common experience uh, since the average life expectancy was around 25 years of age. Uh, that doesn't mean that everybody died at 25, but, you know, there was such a high mortality rate. Children died, uh, usually half of all children died before the age of five uh, because of various uh, diseases and other things. And then though there were people who lived to be uh, 60, 70 years of age, that was really considered to be pretty aged. In fact, that wasn't that different than our context here, just uh, within my lifetime. I remember when my uh, parents were, uh, when I was growing up at my parents' home, that the average life expectancy was uh, 62 years of age, which is why they put Social Security at 62, because you weren't supposed to make it. Um, 
But uh, I remember as a little kid, be kind of worried because my father was older and he was, uh, as, as a teenager, he was in the 60s. And I thought, man, my dad, you know, he shouldn't be living much longer. And he did die shortly after that uh, at 83. But, um, but you know, it's, it's one of these things that sometimes when we go through any kind of a struggle in our life, we tend to think that our struggle with that is unique. And one of the things that Scripture says is there, in Hebrews, the writer says that there's nothing that's overtaking you that isn't common to man. So every kind of challenge, every kind of struggle you face uh, is something that a lot of other people are going through. And there's two ways to look at hardship in life. One is you can look at it as being a misfortune that has overtaken you, and you're busily, energetically trying to figure out how you can un or escape the misfortune. Excuse me, I'm falling apart here. Yeah, how you can uh, change your circumstance and get away from it. So, for example, if you're a widow, uh, the first thing that would come to your mind is, where can I find somebody who will marry me and treat me, hopefully, better than the one I had before, and I'll live happily ever after? And uh, statistically, uh, and, and keep in mind that I believe in God, not statistics, but nonetheless, statistically, the chance of a widow remarrying is actually rather small. Uh, just because as you get older, you find that there are fewer and fewer men who are available in the marriageability pool. So I don't mean to discourage you, but uh, the simple fact is that the chances are very high that if a woman, especially in the latter periods of her life, becomes a widow, that she will not remarry. And uh, and if she does, and today it's becoming very complicated because we're finding that, you know, many times if women remarry after they've been a widow, they have all sorts of financial complications. So um, I'm saying all that just so whoever asked the question will understand that I do have some sense of the, the difficult dynamics. But here's what's important, I think, not only for a person in that situation, is to understand that there's nothing that comes into my life that isn't allowed to come into my life by God. And that what may appear to me to be the simplest answer to the problem, which usually is some kind of immediate rectification, may in fact not be the direction that God is trying to like take my life. That I think that what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7 and again in 1 Timothy 5 is that a widow can live a very full, rich life because she has greater freedom to attend to the needs of the Lord and other believers as opposed to taking care of a husband or in, in the widower's case, taking care of a wife. And uh, most of us don't think about that because our first issue is how do I minister to my own need? Isaiah made an interesting prophetic word. He said that the, the, uh, the barren woman would have more children than the woman who had many children. And what he was referring to is the fact that, that God has the ability to multiply relationships in our lives if we're open to seeing and experiencing them someplace than just the ordinary sense. In other words, a woman can be, I, I, I have a gal that I was in ministry with many, many decades ago who we served in the same ministry who uh, went to Thailand in her early, late 20s and got involved with working in short term in a orphanage in Thailand and on, on the border with Laos and Cambodia. And became so involved in that that she ended up spending the next 30 years 
ministering in this context, and now she runs this whole entire thing. She's never married, but she has more kids than you and I can even imagine. In fact, a friend of mine was just there ministering uh, with her, and he told me that she's at that point in her journey where she realizes that she only has so many years that she can be effective. And she took her workers, her team with her, who are all native uh, ties, to a plot of ground that she bought. And she said, I purchased this piece of ground. This is where I'm going to be buried. And you need to understand that one day my body is going to be in here. So you guys need to start getting ready to carry on the work after I'm gone. And I, I thought it was this amazing thing because she has so embraced that. And the issue of not being married or having a spouse is kind of completely off, off the table for her because her life is so consumed in this ministry. So um, I hope it doesn't sound like I'm being insensitive because even in terms of the things that I've been sharing on marriage, you have to understand what it's not necessarily exclusively about marriage. It's about relationships. The same principles that we apply in the marriage relationship are supposed to be the same principles that we're exercising in all relationships. And therefore, I think that you can take those concepts and begin to apply them into relationships. And there are, one of the things that's common in our culture today is loneliness. We don't realize that because most of us are so busy and we have such a uh, swirl of activity that goes on around us. But I encounter people who are incredibly lonely. Now, if you've just been widowed, you're probably feeling extremely lonely because your entire social relationships are built around uh, were built around your husband and the people you interacted with. One of the sad dynamics that develops even within the church when you become a widow uh, is oftentimes your married friends don't really connect with you anymore. So I've, that would be my encouragement, really, that you would try to find places where you can begin to get involved in, in ministering to others, especially where it says the older women should teach the younger. And what do they need to teach them? One of the things is teach them to love their husbands and to love their children. And uh, if as I remember Dan was talking, or, or uh, Janie was talking about a couple weeks ago about uh, the lady who couldn't have kids and the other women were complaining about what a burden their kids were and how hurtful it was. Well, think about it, that there are young women who are irritated with their husbands and they're, they're kind of short-sighted. They have a, a short-term view of the relationship. And someone who has been married for years and has lived through a lot of stuff and then loses that partner has a perspective on the relationship that younger women desperately need to hear. One widow I, I, I remember years ago uh, saying that she, uh, she used to get so angry with her husband because every night he would come and take his shoes off and put them in the hallway. And she'd get up to go to the bathroom and stumble over them. And it made her so mad and she couldn't figure out why he couldn't remember to put them away. And, you know, of course, as a guy, I know why, because that's short-term memory loss that all men suffer from. But she said after he passed away, she got up to go to the bathroom, and for the first time in years, she didn't trip over his shoes. And she began to cry because she missed it. So it's, it's kind of a, it's, it's a tough dynamic, it's a tough change. But you need to really believe that God has allowed these dynamics to happen because he has something greater that he wants you to do. And you may find the greatest years of personal fulfillment ministry are going to come in the future. You're going to live life looking forward to what God has for you, not looking back.
looking forward to the next series on parenting, I mean, there's people here who might be like, I've been parents for a long time, or uh, people who, maybe younger people who say, I'm never having kids ever. What would you say looking forward about that message for them? I have nothing for you. Uh, <laughs> 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 you know, it's a... Uh, <clears throat> Yeah, well, one of the things I always clearly say about, about parenting is that whenever I talk about it, I never speak of it as an expert, but just as a survivor. And I think you survive parenthood. I don't think you ever become an expert at it. So uh, all I can say is that, again, it's, it's, uh, there are profound dynamics in the parental relationship that begins first and foremost with our Father in heaven. And again, as we look at what the Bible teaches about parenthood, it's always the outward expression of a, a greater principle. So that when you study the Bible, you start with the biblical principle, and then you see the application of the principles to the various areas of life. And that's all it really comes down to at the end of the day, is that how do I live out my Christian faith as a parent, but also how do I live out my Christian faith as a child? Because one of the things I discovered uh, as my parents aged, that they never stopped being my parents. But I began to have to really evaluate what, I, what kind of a child I had been and how I related to them. And so particularly this, this first week, we're going to talk about that passage where it says that it's the first commandment with promise, which is to honor your mother and father. This is a dynamic that has gotten really lost in our culture, and I think we're reaping the consequences of it. But I don't want to give everything away because, you know, I really don't have much to say anyway. Okay, moving on. Interesting one here. Well, I think you did a good job on that first question, Ken. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Well done. Uh, there's a person I'm in love with who I believe God wants me to be with, but I keep sinning, and I feel like God has taken them from me and changed his mind. <laughs> That's one of those kind of questions you want to have a conversation <laughs> over. Uh, there's a lot of detail in there that obviously isn't included, which could take the conversation in a lot of different directions. But let me first of all say that if God wants you to be with somebody, then guess what? You'll end up with that somebody. I mean, uh, that's that sovereign grace of God. And I think that whenever you talk about marriage relationships, you have to uh, view it that way from before you become engaged till the end of your life, that God is going to link me with the person that he wants me to be with. Where we get frustrated is, or, or begin to disbelieve that, is when we marry somebody and then it begins play, becomes a, a relationship full of strife and conflict and difficulties. And again, I think about how Peter said, you know, when you go through fiery trials, you shouldn't feel as if something strange has happened to you. And yet invariably, that's the way we interpret it. Well, I must have married the wrong person because, uh, I, you know, I'm not happy, uh, we're having conflicts, there's the difficulties. And... And, and we tend to carry that concept into everything. I mean, we, we, we join a church because we believe that church is going to be the most perfect group of people that we're ever going to be around because they're just such nice, kind, loving, smiling, happy, together people who don't have problems and they'll make all mine go away. And then we, at some point, realize that the pastor is insane, uh, the, the elders are deaf, dumb, and blind. Uh, uh, we start finding that the people that make up a congregation are actually people. And so what do we do? 
we have a spiritual divorce. We move on, and we go, I'm going to find, and, and I know people who have spent their entire lives. I've seen them come through this church two or three times over the last three decades. You know, they, they, I think they keep on hoping that we've changed. Uh, <laughs> but it's this idea that somehow uh, if something is difficult, if there's conflict, if there's hardship, that, that I've made a bad choice or it's not supposed to be. Because if it's the right one, it's always going to be good and easy. And that's one of the things I've tried to emphasize, I think, throughout here is that, that the reality is that life is hard and that we grow through hardships and difficulties. I've talked, we've talked about Proverbs 27, 17, as iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens accountants and friends, so forth and so on. But that just becomes a phrase until you're in the midst of the sharpening experience I know one of the greatest moments in, 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 in my marriage was when my wife looked at me one day and says, you know, you really have changed. Because, you know, there's a point where you feel like there's so much tension over some issue that you don't feel like you're growing. You don't feel like you're changing. And then somebody affirms that and says, I can see the difference you make. And you realize at that moment, if it hadn't have been for that tension, if it hadn't been for that conflict, I never would have made the changes because I didn't want to. Remember what I said on Sunday? We all want to change, we just don't want to have to change. I mean, that's the struggle. So I would say first and foremost to this person, if God wants you to be together with this person, then, then it's going to happen. Now, when you say I keep on sinning, uh, my mind begins to go wild with what exactly was, is that? And here's my advice about this area where you keep on sinning. Stop it. <laughs> Maybe things will change. I don't know. But I think that it's more than just, and I think this is our problem when we deal with sin issues in our life and other people's lives. We simply recognize that something's wrong and we say to somebody, stop doing it. What I think I've found over the years is that a lot of times when we're doing something that's wrong and we know that we're doing something's wrong, it's because we're treating it symptomatically. We're not really going to the root of the cause. And I don't mean just the fact that I have a sin root in me because I have original sin, because I'm a son of Adam and I have this fallen nature. That's a given. I mean, I, in, in, in some ways, I say half hard or half humorously, you know, if I'm sucking air, I'm probably sinning. Because in effect, we all have sinful behaviors. We, we, we think things, we say things, and, and we do things that we can look at sometimes almost immediately and say, well, that, that wasn't really the Lord. You know, I think particularly if I watch news about things that are going on in the world, I sometimes, especially in the political realm, I hear things coming out of my mouth that afterwards I say, wow, that's probably not a Jesus phrase. But, but you know, in, in it, really, I mean, honestly, I have to say, God, forgive me, because I, I don't want to give, I don't want to plant that seed in my heart, because then I'll be just like the people I'm watching on TV. I don't want to go there, Lord. I, I, I want to live redemptively. But... So understanding, yeah, we all have this sin issue, but when somebody says, I, I, I keep on sinning in a way that is, by implication destroys the relationship, here's, here's the interesting tension. I don't want to lose a relationship, but I can't change the behavior that's killing it. Well, then that's where we need to get on our face before the Lord and say, Jesus, I need you to really give me insight and understanding why I choose to do something that I know I shouldn't be doing. What's really moving, motivating that in my life? Because that's, 
you know, when we we're basically know that we're doing something that isn't in our own good interest, our own self-interest. We're doing something that's bringing destruction to our life. Why am I doing that? And what I find is when you begin to ask honestly that God would give you understanding and insight, He does. Now, He may use other people, and, and I'm not adverse to people going and seeing counselors. I think that when you're behaving in a way that's unhealthy and you know it, you may need to sit down with a professional who can help you kind of untie all those knots and get down to what is really underlying this behavior. But God may be actually using this conflict and this pain of broken and lost relationship to get you to look beyond just the behavior but going deeper into what is the, the root cause behind that. Because, I mean, I'll give an example. I know this isn't a political correct example, but I'll give it because it's a biblical example, is when you talk about somebody who's fallen into homosexual behavior. You know, the, the simple fact is that, uh, that homosexual behavior is the consequence of broken relationships, usually a broken relationships between a, a parent or parents. Uh, usually many, a high percentage of people who get involved in the gay lifestyle or who decide that they are, uh, you know, uh, homosexual have had sexual abuse early in their life. Now, you know, there's been an effort over the last few years to say that's not the case, but there's just been a, a major study that's just come out by two of the leading psychiatrists and bioethicists who uh, looked at all of the existing literature and they say the overwhelming uh, scientific evidence indicates that homosexuality is not the consequence of any kind of genetic predisposition. People are not born that way. And they say we, to simplify uh, sexuality in human beings to those kind of factors is just completely ridiculous because it's far more complicated. But the major reason, they said, is because of childhood trauma. So, you know, a lot of times people, what they want to do is we, we behave in a certain way and your sin nature wants to say, well, my sin isn't sin, but rather it's something I'm born with. When the fact of the matter is that uh, the sin is there and your p compulsion to behave in that way is rooted in something deeper and it will continue to be there until you're willing to own that fact. So that when I look at somebody who's engaged in on homosexuality uh, and my, my first thing is that you can't even begin to address that in your life until you're willing to call it what it is, and that's sin. And people say, well, that's so unloving. Well, <laughs> it's, just, it's not any more unloving and when I talk to the drug addict or the alcoholic and say, you're not going to get free from this until you say alcoholism is not a good choice. Drug addiction is not a good choice. Uh, being hateful, uh, raging, whatever the issue is, we don't ever change until we're willing to say, not only is this destructive, but it's something that God prohibits. It's something that God says, this is not supposed to be in your life. And when I confess it as sin, I am opening the door in my life to the redemptive power and the grace of God that can bring me change. So I, again, I, I, I've kind of made some assumptions based upon the, the vagueness of the question, but I would just, whoever asked that, I would just put that challenge out to you saying, really start asking God, why is it that I keep on repeating this behavior that I know is wrong. Because all you do is go in the guilt-shame cycle, you know, and just go around and around and around. Oh, I'm such a terrible person. Why do I do this? God can't forgive me. Blah, blah. God forgive me. And then you say, okay, I'm promising I'll never do that again. And then you find yourself doing it again. 
And I've seen many people walk away from the church, walk away from the faith because they said, I just can't live up to God's standard. And that has really nothing to do with it. None of us live up to God's perfect standard. That's why Jesus died on the cross. What is really at play here is, have you, under, have you come to the place where you're willing to say, God, I, I give you permission to get to the root of whatever it is in my life that caused me to behave this way? It may not lead to and probably won't lead to immediate change of behavior. The temptation will not immediately evaporate, but God will begin to work redemptively in your life, uh, both through your own spiritual experience with God, but also in relationships with other people where God will begin to speak into your life and open your eyes and give you ends of understanding. And when you really begin to see the root cause of what's going on there and really can grieve and sorrow over what caused that damage in your life in the first place, then you invite the healing of the Holy Spirit in, and that's where victory comes. I hope that wasn't too abstract. I think we got it. <laughs> a follow-up question just on that question, uh, can you make a, um, can you talk a little bit about God's discipline? Because it seems like in this question is in, there's something implied about the Lord disciplining, taking away things that we like. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, and, and, and when we get into the whole issue of parenting, I want to talk a lot about what the Bible means, for example, passages to, uh, you know, spare the, don't uh, spare the rod and spoil the child, this whole concept. Uh, because we have a, a distorted concept of the idea of discipline. We, ha we have to understand that we talk about having uh, disciplined lifestyles or different disciplined personalities or disciplined behaviors. Uh, we don't think about those as somebody standing over us with a switch and hitting our hand or shocking us every time we do something wrong. We, we think in terms of training. And that's really what the biblical discipline is all about. It's, it's God bringing correction for the purpose of training into our life. Because one of the things that Paul said, again, to Timothy was he says that, you know, physical exercise has a benefit for a while, but he said godliness uh, is forever, and therefore he says, train yourself in godliness. So that this is something that we develop as an internal consciousness and, 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 and uh, uh, behavior in our life. It's something we do with regularity. So that I often make reference to the fact that I get up in the morning and I read my Bible and, and spend time with the Lord. That's a discipline in my life. That's something I was trained to do. Well, how did I develop that discipline? Well, first of all, I, I developed it by not doing that. I developed it by trying to, getting up in the morning, getting dressed and racing out and dealing with life and finding that I was unprepared for many of the things that I experienced through the day. So I found that when I began to spend time with God, it's almost like the Japanese business idiom that says, the longer I take, the faster I go. I found that the more time I spend preparing my heart in prayer and his word in the morning, the more effective my day becomes, even though initially it felt like I was wasting time. And so I think the same thing is when we talk about the discipline of God in our life, it's, it's something that God is wanting to take you by the hand and lead you in, and he rewards you and responds to you as you take steps towards uh, fulfilling his commands and following his leadership in your life. So um, it's, uh, 
Every one of us has a desire. We're created by God to be productive. You know, he said basically in, in, in Genesis when he created man, he says, uh, go forth and multiply and fill the earth. I mean, the idea was being reproducers, being productive. Every one of us desperately needs to feel that we're living our life in a way that is effective and is productive and matters. You know, it's like uh, if you ever saw the movie uh, Saving Private Ryan, the, the great scene at the finale of the movie is when the young man who survives uh, and is saved by uh, Ryan and the other soldiers that go to rescue him, that he's an old man, he's looking at the graves, and he, and he looks at his family and he says, have, have I lived a good life? And the reason he asks that question is because as Ryan is dying, he says to him, earn this, earn this. You know, we've given our life for you. Earn this. Make something out of this. Don't let our sacrifice go for nothing. And I think that's important to understand that Christ died on the cross so that you could grow and, and, and manifest the reality of his saving power and grace in your life. And that's why God is constantly trying to develop spiritual disciplines in your life and my life. It's an unending process. And every day, God wants me to grow in some way towards him. So, again, when we look at life as simply being a, a process of fulfilling my, my ambitions and my desires, that, you know, we all have a bucket list. I confess it. I have a bucket list. And I was just talking about going to Gettysburg and, and visiting Gettysburg. It's on my bucket list. I'm actually plotting to do it this year somehow, some way. But that's not the motive of my life. If I never see the battlefield of Gettysburg, my life doesn't have to stop in not being fulfilled. My dad's goal in life was to make a million bucks. You know, I mean, uh, and, it, and he never, well, he kind of made it. But the bottom line is that it didn't fulfill. Getting there wasn't fulfillment because that's not the kind of thing I'm talking about. I'm talking about how that we are designed by God to grow in our relationship with him and to become closer with him. And every day when you wake up, to recognize that God has things that are going to be coming into my life today that are designed to create a deeper fellowship and a deeper discipline in my life that I might walk more fully, more powerfully, more intimately with him is, is really the, the key, I think, to living a successful life. You may come to the end of the day and say, you know, Lord, I was up to bat three times. I struck out every time today. Okay, but tomorrow you might hit a home run. And it's part of even the failures of life are part of the keys to learning how to live victoriously in Christ. Amen. You're two for two. Batting like the Cubs. Um, keep on talking until something <laughs> Okay, here's a... Here's a tough one. Um, what can you do, or what can the church do, to get men off porn? Uh, many marriages are destroyed by this. Um, so, what are your comments there? Yeah, it's, that's, a, that's a tough one. That's a really tough one. What can we do? Um, you know, I... We find, quite honestly, we're finding that this is becoming, is not only a major problem, but it's a major problem that's reaching younger and younger, so that we're finding that kids as early as five and six years of age are being exposed to pornography. 
because it's so pervasive in our society. And um, it's, uh, I mean, I, I stopped reading all the statistics and everything that goes along with it because what I, what I finally have concluded is that it's like any other addiction because that's what it is. It's an addiction that until the person decides that they want allow God to change them, nothing seems to work. And, and most people who get into it don't realize that the goal of most of the pornographic industry is to uh, expose young people between the ages of 12 and 14 because if they can get them to begin to maximally expose themselves to pornography at that age, they will be lifelong addicts. Because what happens in the brain is the, the term they actually use is erototoxins. In the same way that, that uh, someone might shoot heroin, they say that, that the brain emits these uh, chemicals that create this feeling of well-being and of euphoria that the delivery is faster than if you were injecting heroin in your vein. So that what you find is that people then become addicted to that and they go back to get that feeling of euphoria. So that pornography creates a fantasy that produces a euphoria that's like using a drug and the person becomes addicted to that just like a drug addict gets addicted to heroin or something of that nature. And the dangerous thing is that, like heroin, uh, you keep on having to up the dosage. And so you keep on having, in the, in the pornographic world, you start, you get to more uh, purient uh, stuff. You have to get more graphic. You have to get, and that's where you find that people move into some of the uh, unthinkable things where they may start off and looking at what we used to refer to as cheesecake stuff, and then suddenly they're into homosexuality and bestiality and all sorts of bizarre, violent sexuality, masochistic, um, uh, sadomasochism, and all these things. And you, and, and you have to understand that a person doesn't just simply start there. Almost all of them started, uh, well, as Ted Bundy said, I found a Playboy magazine in the trash can of my next-door neighbor. And he says it just fueled something in me that I just kept on feeding until basically I couldn't find sexual fulfillment unless I was murdering the person that I was having sex with. Now, I don't understand that. I don't know if hopefully none of us here <laughs> understands that and, and may want us to sit back and say, well, I think he's just making excuses. It's not true. But the research pretty much shows that for a lot of people, it's going to lead them further and further and further into it. And so when this person says it ruins marriages, I have no doubt it does. Because the, the nature of the addiction takes over the life of the person who's involved with it. So I think that part of it is, is, is the realization that we're talking about addiction. And we're talking about an addiction that's as serious as any kind of drug that you can think of. It will destroy your life, not just your marriage. It will destroy your life if you don't find a way to deal with it. So how do you deal with that? Well, the first step is the hardest step. Confess your sins one to another that you might pray for one another. And this is the biggest problem we've had because men are so ashamed of their attraction that and, and their involvement in homo... In, um, pornography, that it's 
the most tightly held secret they have. And basically, the research I've seen says that 98% of men have viewed pornography in the last month. Now, I, I look at that and I go, I find that hard to believe. But what it does mean is there's a lot of men who are good men, who are fathers and husbands and all that kind of stuff who are in this church who find themselves attracted to it. Now, let's be honest. Uh, men are visually stimulated, and that's why they are so much more easily attracted to it. There is, there's no way on God's green earth that a man can look at an attractive woman and not notice that she is an attractive woman. Uh, hopefully that woman is your wife, but the point is that that's, you know, I, I mean, I got to be honest, what made me take a second look at my wife? Uh, two things I've explained. She was a hottie and I was a naughty, you know, <laughs> and so I just, and when she gave me a second look, I thought, man, I'm not going to let this go by. <laughs> I mean, that's, and, and we understand that's where those relationships start. You women have this thing that you do with your eyes. I mean, I just, it's just, it's, the power is incredible. But the whole point is that the fact that we're attracted is not the issue. And so what we've tried, in, when societies have tried throughout, all over the world throughout history is to create this barrier where men can't see, like in the Muslim world, where women are draped in, 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 in uh, these robes. And what they find is the men are checking out their ankles. You know? <laughs> it's just, it's just this, this idea of attraction isn't the problem. That's the normal thing. It's not sin to recognize that that's an attractive woman, that's an attractive man. That's not sin. What is sin is where that takes us. And what pornography does is takes us into a fantasy world. It takes us into a world that's not real. It, it's, it lies, and uh, I, I love what somebody once said, this article I was reading, they said that if the woman that you're oogling in the pornographic, uh, well, this was back in the days when they had, it was all in magazines, in the Playboy magazine, if you encountered her in re real life, she wouldn't have anything to do with you. So you're saying, well, what's the fantasy, attraction? Well, it's all fantasy, it's all make-believe. So uh, Josh McDonald once, McDowell said that the strongest sexual organ in the body is the brain. So it's an issue in the brain, but it's also an issue of when you give place to it, it creates an addiction. And I would simply say that the, the first place to confess that uh, is to uh, your spouse. And I would say that if you're the wife and your husband comes and saying, I'm struggling with this, uh, it's hurtful and it's painful to hear that. But don't react as if he's a baby killer. And that's the problem is that so often the wives are so offended or disillusioned when the husband comes and shares this with them that their reaction is so strong with such rejection that he makes a, a promise to himself in that moment, I will never, ever admit this ever again. And that's really, I think, that when you tell the truth, because it's a violation of this marriage covenant, Pornography is a violation of the marriage covenant. It's lusting after someone who is not your spouse. It's engaging in an adulterous affair in your mind. 
even though you may or may not, hopefully you never act upon it, but nonetheless, that's what you're doing. And the first place you have to confess your sins is the one to whom you have sinned against. And so you have to do that. But again, if someone comes to you and confesses that sin, your husband confesses that sin, don't reject him for getting honest, even though I know it's painful. But it's something that together you can begin to pray about and maybe necessarily get into counseling together about. Because remember what I said in one of the earlier answers? The symptom is different from the root. There's a root in that. And what's really rooted in men's attraction is this deep sense of inadequacy that most men carry around inside of them. And so, uh, believe it or not, ladies, when you said yes, he was shocked. He never thought you, he was expecting you to say, in your dreams, you know, Jim Carrey, you mean there's one chance in a million? <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's it, because he, he, most men carry within that sense that they're not going to be accepted. But it, it's really, really, a, I know I'm asking a lot saying this. I feel awkward even saying this to the ladies because I'm not one. But you can't imagine how healing that is when the wife says to the husband, I forgive you and I love you and we'll, we'll overcome this together. That's the most important thing. Because I've done men's things and we'll ask the guys, you know, do you want to put this out of your life? And man, the guys, they run up to the front and they're praying and asking for prayer and so forth. But then you say, okay, you need to go and confess this sin to your wife that's, it, it, it often stops right there. They're terrified, terrified to do that because they expect to be rejected. Um, and so I, I don't want to minimize, ladies, how painful it is to hear that. But again, that can be one of the great building blocks in the relationship. I'm sweating up here right now. <laughs> follow-up question. <laughs> no, but seriously, I do have a follow-up on that. Briefly, um, you talked a lot about uh, pornography and its effects in the marriage relationship. How about on the single guys or single girls? Well, like any other, any kind of sexual immorality, and I do put it in that category, sexual immorality, um, it, it will uh, damage future relationships. And uh, the problem is, is it, it, it creates many times in guys an expectation of what the marriage bed is going to be like that is not the real world. I mean, it's just, that's... These are actors pretending stuff, you know? So you, if you buy into that, uh, you know, or, or get into that, then you go into the relationship expecting this same kind of thing. And what we find is that's when they start, men start introducing pornography into the marriage as saying, well, this is a way that we can stimulate our lovemaking and so forth. And it's just the beginning. I mean, it's just uh, when you... <laughs> As a pastor or counselor, you're trying to, you get into the middle of something like that, I tell you, it's just like, a, it's a mess because it scrambles all the eggs and then you're trying to get them back in the shell. And it's, it's just, it's a very foolish thing, gentlemen. I, I, I just would really, really urge you if you're a single man or a single woman, because what I, I'm reading now is that this is becoming, a lot of women are now beginning to engage in, in pornography as well. Uh, it's going to, it's going to, it's, you're going to, you sow to the wind, you're going to reap the whirlwind. It's not going to produce good results. It creates, it, it, it turns, it reduces intimacy to mere sensuality. 
And I'm saying this as somebody who's been married, you know, 46 years. And uh, I say this so I don't embarrass my wife. Um, my wife and I have, have an intimate, sensual relationship, but it's not based upon just sensuality. There's, there's, a, there's a different love. You know, there's, uh, C.S. Lewis in the book, The Four Loves, talked about how that there is, there's agape love or agape love. There's filial love, the love of friendship. Uh, and then he says there's storge love, which is the, the love of family, of loyalty. And then there's eros. And he said the danger is that when things just become eros, that it turns you into a predator that seeks to consume without being consumed. It seeks to satisfy its own appetite without thinking about how it satisfies the appetite or the needs of the other. And there's, there's something about uh, the beauty of, of romance, of the beauty of what makes lovemaking romantic is the fact that there is a blending, the two become one. It's that sharing together of the intimacy that's not measured by the height of the ecstasy, but by the depth of the intimacy. Uh, I'm really trying to say this. I'm sorry, I wasn't prepared for these questions. <laughs> but that's the best I can, yeah. Follow-up question. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, do we got time for one more briefly? I'm looking back trying to see Mark. Have I ever answered a question briefly? <laughs> Mark says go for it. OK. Uh, does God ever call people to divorce their spouse? I don't think God ever calls us to divorce. I think God has given us permission to divorce under certain circumstances. And, uh, but, you know, I have people all the time, or not all, quite regularly, talk about uh, an unfaithful spouse or something like that and ask me if they, have, if, if they should get a divorce, and my answer is always the same. I can't answer that question. Uh, you know, because what the Bible tells me that if your spouse violates the, sex, the, uh, the, the, the uh, covenant of marriage by adultery, then basically they have fractured the covenant. And, uh, but does that mean that the covenant can't be restored? My only thing I say to them is, if you're going to forgive your spouse for their sin rather than divorce them, then you have to start anew and leave that, that can't be a reference point into the future. You can't constantly hold this over their head and say, well, you cheated, and you, you have to come to such a level of forgiveness that you can, uh, that you can, you can move on without doing that. But because that is so difficult, I think that's why God said, if your spouse is unfaithful, you can get divorced. Now, the whole topic of divorce uh, and remarriage uh, is, is, there's whole books written on this, theological books that go into all this. But let me try to kind of cover it from Jesus, what Jesus taught. Because uh, the primary passage is in Matthew chapter 19 where Jesus' disciples came to him and they said, is it okay to divorce your wife for every cause? That's not just a linguistic uh, uh, error. That's literally what the, what the original text said. Can I divorce my wife for every cause? And they're going back to Deuteronomy chapter 24. In Deuteronomy chapter 24, Moses gave what was called a writ of divorcement. He said to a man that if a man finds within his wife some uncleanness, he can, 
he, he can divorce her if he gives her a writ of divorcement. And what the writ of divorcement was basically a paper that says he has divorced her so that she is free to remarry. And, uh, but, he, but he goes on to say, but if later on she marries someone else and then he, her husband dies or he gets rid of her because he finds some uncleanness in her, then she can't, he can't remarry her. In other words, they, if there's been a spouse in between, they can't remarry in the relationship. Well, what the rabbis in Jesus' day were arguing about is how to define the word uncleanness. There was never, in Judaism, there's never been a discussion of can a divorced person remarry. That's been introduced through Christian theology in the Middle Ages, but that was never what we found, find even today in Judaism and certainly in biblical times. So that was not the question, can a person who's divorced remarry? So just to clarify that. But what is interesting is there's two, there was two schools. The school of Hillel said uncleanness there means... Uh, uh, that she wasn't a virgin when you're married. Now, some people say, well, maybe it's adultery. No, if it was adultery, she was to be taken out and stoned, <laughs> or he was to be taken out and stoned. No, but if she had been, uh, turns out that she wasn't a virgin, in other words, on the marriage night, he discovers that she's, she wasn't a virgin, then that's an uncleanness that he could get, put her away for. Uh, the school of Shimei was much more uh, liberal, and they said, no, the word, the meaning of uncleanness there is if she f burns your eggs for breakfast in the morning, you can divorce her, literally for every cause. Well, that was a very popular view in the day because what that was happening in, in even that period was that when a wife began to become older and he encountered a more attractive younger woman, especially the wealthy men, well, they do kind of what happens even today. They give her a written divorce, basically walk in, hand her a piece of paper and says, uh, I'm divorcing you. And he would take her out in the public square. He would say in front of a group of people, I hate you, I hate you, I hate you, we're divorced, and send her away. And she was she was forsaken woman at that point. And that's what Jesus' disciples are saying, is, is that okay? And Jesus says, no, it's not okay. He made you one flesh. His intention is you're together for until death do you part. And basically, there's only one basis, he said, for divorce, and that is if she commits porneia, which is a, really includes a wide variety of sexual offenses, adultery, fornication, homosexuality. Uh, some people feel it involves pornography. Um, that's not necessarily clear, but there's some people who teach that. But it's this sexual unfaithfulness in the marriage is the only basis. They violated the covenant. Um, Paul added to that in 1 Corinthians 7 a little bit because what he talked, because it was a different dynamic. In the church, there was a situation that didn't exist in Israel. In the church, you had Christians or people who are non-Christians getting saved and now being married to a non-Christian. And what Paul said, if you're married to a non-Christian and the non-Christian wants a divorce, let them go. Because, because you don't know whether they'll be saved or not. But if they're willing to dwell with you in peace, then stay with your spouse. So what he's basically saying is that if you're married to a non-Christian, he goes on to say, because otherwise 
He said that relationship is sanctified by the faith of the believer. Otherwise, your children would be unclean or basically would be outside of the blessing of God uh, as your children in that household. So he adds that dynamic. And he also, so what we interpret that today to say is that if you're in a marriage and your spouse departs or leaves, which we call desertion, at some point, it becomes apparent that they're not coming back, that, that we, I believe personally it's, it's, it's permissible to get a divorce under those circumstances and that the believer is not held because I, I simply sit down, that person probably isn't a believer to begin with who left. When it says that they are called to dwell in peace, I interpret that to say that if he is beating you up and being physical and verbally abusive to the place where it's, it's harmful, uh, that you're not required to stay in that relationship until you're dead. Uh, because I've, I've seen that situation. And I, I include verbal abuse, and I mean specifically, I, I dealt with one situation where a gentleman, um, again, he said he was a Christian. I don't believe he was, because in works he denied him. But he would back his wife physically into a corner and scream at her in her face, inches away, at the top of his lungs, until she finally withered in a pile in the corner. And when they came into counsel with me, I saw him do it to her. And I, I mean, <laughs> it was the most amazing thing in the world. I, I, I've never seen such verbal violence. So uh, to me, my advice to her was, get away from this guy, because you're going to probably kill yourself if he doesn't kill you first. So I think that there are bases in which it's allowable that you have permission that if there's uh, sexual immorality in the relationship, if there's desertion or if there's abuse, then I think that you are free to leave. Now, I, I will admit that there are people who disagree with me on that, and I completely support their right to be wrong. But, um, I mean, uh, yeah, so anyway, that's, that's my short answer, my brief answer. Well, I think that's all the time we have, and that's also all the questions. We have, so I'm going to give it back to Ken here. He's going to close us out. Father God, I just pray that you would um, just help us all, Lord, to uh, walk redemptively in every relationship in our life. But particularly when we talk about the relationship of a husband and wife, Lord, there are so many devices that the enemy can bring in to divide and to destroy a marriage. That the marriage, Lord, is, is this sacred thing that is designed by heaven to depict the relationship of Christ to his church. Lord, we all humble ourselves in honesty right now and tell you that as husbands, we often fail to love our wives the way you love us. As wives, we often fail to, to honor our husbands the way you honor us. Lord, we, we admit that and I pray for those who are struggling with pornography. I pray for those who are struggling with homosexual tendencies or even things in their life. Lord, I pray that regardless of what the issue may be, that they would be willing to, to really bring that honestly to you and if necessary, to bring it honestly to their spouse and confess it and that that would be the beginning of healing and redemption in the relationship. Lord, these are hard issues. These are hard things to deal with. And, I struggle just to give simple answers about it, Lord. But I know, God, that you have the power to, 
to redeem to the uttermost. You have the power to, to fix stuff that's unfixable. That you have the ability to take a marriage that's hopeless and fill it with hope and fill it with life and fill it with healing and make it whole again, Lord. That's what we ask for, Lord. We, we believe you for in Jesus' holy name. Amen. <laughs>